We are in Mark chapter 8. What Corbin read for you, the start, or in between, uh, right after the offering, there was the parallel passage in Matthew of what took place up in Caesarea Philippi. Three times this year we've looked at the wilderness temptations of Jesus Christ. Uh, temptations that he endured directly from the lips of Satan. The first three temptations uh, dealt with Christ's appetite, turn these stones into bread. But Christ appealed to the good food of the word from the Father. And Satan came up with a better plan to have Jesus gather attention from the masses and took him to the top of the temple and said, throw yourself down. The word says that the angels will bear you up. And Christ said, no, God has a better way. Do not put him to the test. Then third, Satan overplayed his hand and took Jesus to the top of a high mountain and let him see all the kingdoms of the world and said, all of these are yours if you will bow down and worship me. We highlighted then that all of the kingdoms of the world were already his. And that one day would come when he would rule over them from the earth. But that time was not yet. And so God the Son trusted in God the Father and declared, Him alone shall you worship and flicked Satan away like a mosquito. Be gone. But there are two other temptations recorded in Scripture that Jesus endured. One we will look at today and one we will look at later this fall. We saw rich truths in Christ's temptations that apply even to us today. Things that we can glean from Christ's combat to help us when we face temptations ourselves, things that brought glory to the living God. Today will be no different. What do you do when temptation comes from an unexpected source, from the lips of a good friend and perhaps a brother in Christ? Now, it may not be blatant as Satan's temptations were, It may simply be something that is counter to the way that God is leading you. It may may be a subtle twisting of his word from the lips of a brother. What do you do? Well, let's set the stage. Kind of we did this in Sunday school. Emma, would you click to the next slide, please? Thank you. Here's a map of where we are going to be. This is northern Israel. We looked at southern Israel. In uh, Sunday school, what you see here down at the bottom is the Sea of Galilee. That is way up to the north. We're going to go north of that. If you go straight north out of the Sea of Galilee, 30 miles, you come to the town of Caesarea Philippi. And if you look at how far it is from the coast, it's about the same distance from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, 30 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Luke's 
account of this event does not mention Caesarea Philippi. Matthews does. Um, this was a part of the tetrarchy of a guy named Philip, one of the Herods, the brother of Antipas. Uh, you can read about him in uh, Luke's God, or we will be reading about him as pastor teaches through Luke in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. He had charge of it. He built this town. It used to be called Peneus, was a town in which there were shrines to the god Pan. It's a beautiful area. If you'll notice, just to the northeast of Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is so big that if you are standing on the southern coast of the Sea of Galilee, if you are in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, you can see Mount Hermon. It's huge by comparison. Okay, it stands way up. That would be like seeing the mountains of the Wichita Mountains from here. They would have to be a good bit bigger than they are right now. Uh, Mount Hermon is snow-capped throughout the year. It is a, a favorite place for folks to go skiing in the wintertime. But it's a beautiful area. It's forested. Lots of trees. When Philip rebuilt the town, he named it Caesarea after Augustus Caesar. Emma, you can click the slide, please. Named it after Augustus Caesar, but there's a Caesarea already on the coast. Caesarea Maritima. Okay, maritime. Sea, seacoast. Caesarea on the coast, essentially. Dedicated to Caesar, and so this one was going to be different somehow, so Philip threw his name in there to distinguish it. It is Caesarea dedicated to Caesar Philippi. This is where Jesus took the disciples it was a place of tranquility. I, it doesn't say this, but I believe, considering there weren't crowds around them, that Jesus took them to get away. A beautiful place to get away. Walking through the woods. Smelling the pine. Resting. And it's at this point that we see that sometimes spiritual highs can precede a spiritual challenge. Everything's going great. Everything's wonderful. Question one from Jesus comes in this scenario. Mark 8, verse 27. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Okay, the villages. So we see Matthew's gospel referred to it as a district. We tend to think of things as a point town. Well, there were towns around there. None of them uh, as big as Burke Burnett is today. They were smaller towns, so there were villages about. This was the district of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? Luke tells us he was praying alone. Was he praying alone or was he on the way? Again, we talk, we, in Sunday school this came out. Oh, what do we do if I look at the different accounts? Perhaps they were on their way. 
and they took time to rest under the shade of the trees on their way up to Caesarea Philippi. And while they were resting under the trees, Jesus Christ quite obviously bows and begins to pray to his father. And he comes up from his prayer and asks them, who do people say that I am? When Corbin read this from Matthew's gospel, he asked them, who do you say that the Son of Man is? In Matthew's gospel, a gospel written specifically to Jews, that would be a key point. The Son of Man is a messianic title for him. But Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am, even in Matthew's gospel? And the disciples understood that, which is why both Mark and Luke translate the question this way. Who do people say that I am? Peter answers him. Actually, the disciples answer him. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. Well, could it be John the Baptist? What had happened to John the Baptist? He was executed, he was beheaded. So how could it be John the Baptist unless John the Baptist was resurrected? How could it be one of the prophets unless one of the prophets was resurrected? How could it be Elijah? Well, Elijah never died. But Elijah, and this kind of gives you a hint to what the people are saying, they expected from Malachi that Elijah would precede the Messiah. All of these things seem to be messianic declarations. Somehow, some way, they're not attributing Messiahship to Christ, but essentially that the time is ripe and this guy could be the predecessor of the Messiah. Now, Sometimes if you are with somebody and you want to probe deeply into their heart or their mind, you are not going to start out with a question that goes right into their heart or mind. You're going to go with something a little safer, kind of get them to relax a little bit. And so Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? Well, the real question Jesus wants to ask them follows. Who do you say that I am? Had Peter been sick that day, it would have been interesting to see who answered. Some people never want to answer a question like that because I may be wrong. The timid ones. Peter's not that way. Peter, he's the kid in class whose hand was always up first. There. Peter blurts out, you are the Christ. Matthew says, the son of the living God. Now Mark's gospel here 
simply goes into in verse 30 that he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. But Matthew's gospel says, you are, you are right. But there is no way you could have known this apart from the revelation of the Father. The Father has made this known to you. Well, had not Jesus done miraculous acts? Had he not spoken in ways that were a challenge to their heart? Did, they, did he not astonish them in what he said and what he did? Yes, absolutely. But for Peter, it was obvious that all of these things pointed to him being the Messiah. Not the precursor to the Messiah, but the Messiah. And so Christ blesses that comment. Only God could have revealed this to you. Now, these, these guys are just fishermen. They're not rabbinical scholars. In Acts chapter 4, 13, the priests saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated and common men. And they were astonished. But Peter knew this. It was revealed to him by God. Man in his sin is blind to these truths. You can present the most articulate argument for Christ being the Christ and someone is going to reject it wholesale. Prove to me that there is a God. I can lay out proof, and proof upon proof upon proof and if I could weave together an airtight argument, people would still reject it because of the hardness and blindness of their heart. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says it is upon this declaration, not upon Peter. It cannot be upon Peter. Peter is frail. Peter is broken. He is a little rock. Upon this big rock, upon this foundation, upon this declaration that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, this is upon the foundation which Christ would build his church. So you go, man, this is great. This is awesome. Whoa. Here amongst the trees, listening to Christ's words. This is who you are. And then he charges them to tell no one about him. And then he goes on and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Christ must die. Whoa. So here we come off of a spiritual high. We will find also that these challenges that we face not only might come at the, at the end of a spiritual high, but might come from unexpected sources as well. Christ must die. Matthew says he must go to Jerusalem. He must be rejected, Mark says. 
He must suffer at the hand of the religious leaders. He must be killed. He must rise in three days. Now, here and in Matthew, this is the first time Jesus is speaking to them plainly about this. Jesus even, or Mark declares in verse 32, that he is speaking plainly. There's no doubt about what he's saying. kind of a downer you're the christ you just you just accepted that and now you're telling us that you're you're going to die we know this in hindsight looking back 2000 years but for them this is new what we don't get it And so there's a natural aversion to this plan. You know, you're the Christ. You've been healing everybody. Think of the crowds, man, they're following you. This is great. Look at the groundswell of public opinion in your favor. Yeah, okay, the the priests, they'll come around. You're a leader. You're a born leader. How could death be a good thing? Besides, you got 12 disciples around you. We're fishermen. We're strong. We'll take care of you. And so it's, it's kind of in this mindset that Peter takes the Lord aside. And one of the most absurd encounters in all of Scripture takes place where a man rebukes God. And again, looking back on this, we go, this is, a, this is silly. Peter begins to rebuke the Lord. Matthew says, you know, God forbid that this should happen to you. We look at it as silly and absurd. But is it? Do we not question God's declarations ourselves? Lord, that can't be right. That doesn't make sense. What you are doing in the world, that doesn't make sense. You really don't want him to be the president. You really don't want her to get that job. You really didn't mean for this blowout to happen at this time. You didn't mean for him to get cancer. You didn't mean for... Wouldn't it be better, Lord, if this happened instead? When difficulties befall us and plans don't go our way. God, you've you've kind of botched this one up. Here's what needs to happen. You know, it sounds absurd coming from my mouth, but that is what every one of us deals with. When we are dissatisfied with God's sovereign hand, that that is no more repugnant than Satan enticing God the Son to sin. 
Now, before I absolutely diss Peter into the dust here, did Peter go into this thinking he was the mouthpiece of Satan? No, his heart, he's got a big heart. God, no. No, it's not going to be this way. So, you know, his, his, his intention was good. How does Christ deal with this attempt from his friend to derail God's plan? He is swift and complete in his confrontation with temptation. But turning, verse 33 of Mark 8, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of the things to really draw from this is understand that Christ is never complacent. We never see Jesus Christ complacent. Even when he is relaxing under the trees, he is not complacent. He never checks out on doing the will of the Father. Just because he's with his buddies in a safe place, the evil one can creep in unexpected. For Christ, the diabolos, the devil, Satan, was always expected. What happens when we are not ready for it? In a little over a year, Peter would not be ready for it. Peter, the same one, he just got schwacked with Satan. You know, he got called Satan to his face. A little over a year from this point, Peter's going to be warming himself by a fire. And he's going to be accused of being with Christ. Oh no, no, you got that wrong. He wasn't expecting it. What, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to do if, if I'm confronted here, if Satan attacks me here? He was not ready. But Christ is never complacent. Christ knows that this battle is constant. Our battle against the darkness of the world never ends. It doesn't ever end. Satan doesn't take a holiday. The demons don't take a holiday. Your flesh within you that wars against God does not take a holiday. The battle doesn't end until you breathe your last or Christ returns. Christ is never complacent. He sees, he sees Peter's enticement to him in stark contrast with God's plan and purpose for his life. The purpose of the Father. Jesus knows, he just declared it to the disciples, that he must suffer and die. He must To suggest 
something otherwise is completely opposed to God the Father's plan. How did he know this? Because God the Son is completely in tune with God the Father. So for somebody, even a disciple, even his close friend, to suggest something that is contrary to God the Father's voice is going to be like a bad note on the guitar or on the piano. You're going to go, whoa, what was that? Maybe you're in the wrong key. I get that a lot on Sunday morning. You know, that didn't didn't sound right. But that is how resonant Christ's ears were with the voice of his father. That is wrong. Are we? When you hear things on the radio, when you hear things on the television, when you hear things in the movies, when you hear things from your friends, when you see things on social media, do things cause you to recoil? Do you go, whoa, whoa? How, how can it? It only can if I am in tune with the voice of the Father. How can I be in tune with the voice of the Father? I've got to know His voice. How does He communicate? Plainly. Jesus spoke plainly to His disciples. Do we hear? And so what does Christ do? Christ, he establishes reality. He has a clear picture of reality and declares it. When we are enticed by sin, we often do not see things clearly. In the military, we call this the fog of war. Okay? Uh, Helmut von Molke said, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Oh, we got great plans. This is what we're going to do when we face the enemy. As soon as the first bullet is fired, all bets are off. The smoke on the battlefield, I can't see. Who's beside me? Is that the enemy? I don't know. It's night. It's dark. Where are my NVGs? Man, if I only had a God's eye picture of this. If only I understood where everything was. If only the wind would come in and blow the smoke away so I could see clearly and see plainly. And so Peter gives Christ a distraction on his journey. And Jesus blows the smoke away by establishing the way things really are. What you are telling me, Peter, is of the devil. And the foe that Christ is speaking to is Satan, because it is Satan's desire to derail God the Son. Peter just happens to be the mouthpiece. 
get behind me, Satan. It's not get behind me and follow me. It's like get out of my way. Get out of my way. You are an obstruction to me. Peter just happened to be the shill. He just happened to be the voice. <laughs> when, when, when the Lord looked at him, first he looked at the disciples. The Because the disciples were probably right there with Peter. Going, Lord, it's not going to be that way. Yeah, but Peter's the one saying all of this. And Pete, the Lord sees them and looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. So even it's, though it's directed at Peter, the rest of the disciples are going to feel that sting as well. Going, Whoa. I have a mission, and you will not thwart this mission. We are, we are in a time here and we are in a culture where black and white is increasingly gray. Things where when I was a child I would go there's no way that this this delineation of black and white would be smudged and smeared, but it is. And Christians are cowed and bullied into not making a stand or joining the world's push. We don't, we don't want to cause offense. And so we equivocate and we excuse sin. But when we do this, we soil the holiness and the glory of God before men. It is important for us in the fog of war to clear up the smoke, to clarify the situation and delineate the reality that is around us. As a believer, as a disciple of Christ, can I say clearly how the stance of the world's whisper is opposed to the living God. Can I? Only if I know his word to me. I have to know what God's word plainly states on these matters to be able to see clearly in the battlefield. Okay, so that's evil, but then what is my response to it? Where do I stand? What is good and right and holy and pure and true? And then, how do I convey this? How, with the grace of God that he has lavished upon me, do I convey this in truth? What do I do? What do I say? So this first part of Christ's comment is, is almost through Peter to the one behind Peter. Kind of prompting this whole thing, and that's Satan. But the second part of what Christ says to him is almost exhortive to Peter specifically. Peter, 
Let me help you think clearly. Let me clear the smoke away for you. So when this comes from a brother or sister in Christ, let me declare plainly with God's word what it says. And Jesus says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There are only two mindsets. God's mindset, man's mindset. You are thinking with the wrong focus. Now, again, we can sit there and kind of go, yeah, Peter was, yeah, Peter was so out to lunch. <laughs> we can say that. But God finds it necessary to keep exhorting this same point over and over again throughout his word. Why? Because we all go that way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's back in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 16, the same thing comes out. He tells Peter to set his mind on things of God. Paul writes to the Colossians, Seek those things that are above, not the things on the earth. I opened up our worship, time of worship with Romans chapter 12. The world is going to want to conform you be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Some translations, what is the good, acceptable and perfect will of God. How does that happen? By the renewing of my mind. How is my mind renewed? By God. How? In his word. Through the Holy Spirit. He's going to use his word. As I know my father's voice and am pleased to follow after my father's voice, that ill-hit note is going to be obvious to me. Whereas if I do not have an ear for music, I'm going to miss it. I go, oh, that was really good. No, it was just off. So what are we going to do when godly friends steer us wrong? Well, first know that they're going to. Sorry, that's life. I hope that's not the case. Hopefully when we seek counsel, we seek counsel from godly men and women, people who are steeped and saturated in the word of God. That, that should be the kind of people we're looking for counsel from. But even they will make mistakes. Even they will be influenced by the world. Hope, hopefully not. But it happens. So, so just because you're getting counsel from somebody you really respect and admire in the Lord, you still need to be ready. Christ was not complacent. You must not be complacent. 
So that takes us to the second point. Yes, even as we seek counsel, knowing that, it, that bad counsel is out there, we must be discerning. How do we prepare ourselves to be discerning people? Well, we should pray when we seek counsel. We should pray before we seek counsel, perhaps during the counseling. God, help me be ready. Help me to be attuned to your voice. And what does the Bible say? Compare and contrast the counsel you are getting with what God has revealed in his word. And if the counsel is bad, identify it. Well, God's word says, exhort your brother in Christ. God's word says there. Don't let it go. But as Christ rejected it, so you too must reject it. Well, what if you're that friend offering the bad counsel? What if you're Peter? Did Peter take his ball and go home? No. He continued to follow after Christ. Hopefully your friendship with that person is dear enough that you can take a rap on the knuckles, a spiritual rap, a spiritual correction. Learn, grow, rejoice, and praise God for such friends. So, so here's Peter. He just makes one of the most spectacular catches in biblical history in declaring you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as he's running for the goal line, he then fumbles the ball and becomes a mouthpiece for Satan. But Christ wasn't picking daisies in the end zone. Christ was very clear about what was happening on the field. He saw very clearly what Satan was trying to do. Some days for us, temptations are easy to identify, though they're not always easy for us to parry in our own strength. Some days, temptations are going to come from those we hold dear, from unexpected sources, perhaps. Perhaps those we respect in ministry. Those days must not catch us unaware. Let us not be complacent in this world because Satan wants to see you destroyed. Satan wants to see God's plans thwarted and those who are ministering in his name to be crippled. Let us cling to Christ. Let us know that temptations will come and let us seek the strength that comes in him and through him to help us to grow from these temptations and be the men and women that God would have us to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that through the Spirit you assemble the church, that you bring men and women into our lives to exhort and encourage us in Christ with the Word. We thank you for that. Uh, I, I pray that this truth, that this event would not make us skeptical of the church or the counsel that comes from those in the church. Father, at the same time, help us not to grow complacent in this war. Help us to understand that the battle is always raging and though Satan is not visibly present, he's not physically present here, that his ways have corrupted this world. 
His ways have in fact corrupted our own flesh. Father, let your people be a vigilant people. Let us be attuned to your voice. Help us to hear. Father, be glorified in your church as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.